Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night, wherever you are. Uh, I am in Minnetonka, Minnesota, at my sister's dining room table. Minnetonka. I kind of like saying that. That's fun. Yeah, originally the home of Tonka Trucks, but uh, I don't think they manufacture much here anymore. (laughs) So (laughs) I suspect that that's probably somewhere in Southeast Asia, sadly. Uh, if they even still make them do they still make tonka trucks i think so pretty sure okay. yeah okay and you're visiting family so that's nice yeah i'm on my way to first to chicago and then on to louisville where i'll meet you again but uh i stopped uh here i was supposed to be in my rv you know traveling and that got canceled because of my eye which is stable by the way it's just annoying um that sort of thing so i'm um I'm loving it here. This is I this is my home. It's where yeah. I grew up. And I hadn't been here for almost 4 years, which is the longest I've ever been away from Minnesota and that was mostly because of the lockdowns and that sort of thing and then just time got away from me. So I just love it here. I think Minneapolis you know, it does a great job in the, you know, in the normal parts of the city. It does a really great job for of recreation and it's beautiful it's people don't know this but it's lush and it's green and there's water everywhere obviously 10,000 lakes and all that for Minnesota but it's it's really pretty here and there's bike paths everywhere mm-hmm. i think about all those years i lived in los angeles and you know i rarely rode a bike because it was taking your life in your own hands here uh the other day i rode with my buddy lex we rode uh, 37 miles Oh, nice! Uh, it, it was an electric bike, but uh, it was only on like setting one because it's relatively flat here in Minnesota. And uh, we rode from way out in the western suburbs all the way to St. Paul to Minnehaha Creek. You guys might have sent you a picture from there. And uh, it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful waterfall. The water is just flowing. It's just beautiful. You know, uh-huh. they used to joke that Minnesota had two seasons. It was winter and road construction. People have heard that probably before. I haven't, no. (laughs) Um, And that's true. That's true. The roads around here are all under construction. Mm -hmm. So they can survive next winter, I guess. (laughs) And then last night, my sister sister took me to the Guthrie Theater. It's a very famous theater. And we saw Into the Woods, which is a musical by Stephen Sondheim. Can't say I'm very fond of it. I'm fond of the actors and actresses that were in the in the play. They did a wonderful job, but it's not a I don't know, he's not my favorite musical guy. He's not Rodgers and Hammerstein, he's not Sound of Music. You know, Mary Poppins, the guy the Disney people put that together. Yeah. But anyway, it was fun to be back in a theater um seeing live play. So that's sort of brings me up to date and tomorrow I head down to meet uh, up with Christine Loria and David Hayes. And we're going to be teaching in two university uh, hospital residency programs on Friday and Monday through the Breach Without Borders group. So I'm just, I'm sort of tagging along to teach lithotomy position breach delivery because David and Christine almost always or only teach 
upright breach, which is the way you should be doing most breaches now, but not all women want to be in an upright position and not all women uh, are in a, with a physician or a practitioner who is comfortable with you not being in lithotomy position. So if you have a breach practitioner, but they're only want to do it in lithotomy, that's better than having a C-section for breach. So yeah. And if you, if you're wanting pain medication, then that's probably going to be the position you'd end up delivering in. So absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about you, you you were settled last week, finally in your place. How's it, how's it coming? Um, it's great. And I'm, um, I have a very busy day after this seeing clients before I leave town for a month. I thought it was funny when you said, and then I'm meeting up with you. You didn't sound very excited about it, Stu. I'm going to razz you about it. <laughs> oh, I was just, cause I was on a rattling roll there with my, with my <laughs> you know, I'm dad. still, I'm still a girl. I still like to know that you're going to be excited to see me. I'm excited to see you and all of, uh, you know, all of the superstars in breach and I get to uh share a room with my buddy Hayes who's we've had on the podcast before and um I'm just getting super excited about uh, my travels and so I'll see you there pretty soon. I don't have yep. much to say. I'm just moving in and taking off. That's about I think we'll I think while we're there we're gonna record some really short reels. I think it'll be fun to do with some of the other people that are there. Speaking of reels, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last couple days, I posted a couple at your encouragement, by the way. Yes. Good. You and Scout and Emily, our, our team, encouraged me to do it. So I've been sitting around and since I have so much free time at my sister's house, actually not as much as I thought because I've been seeing old friends and I'm going on bike rides and my sister and brother-in-law put in a pool and it's a saltwater pool and it's 93 degrees in their pool and it is just heaven so uh, can't do a lot of lives well i could actually do a live from the pool couldn't i um but i've done two reels recently and they've gotten a lot of attention and i'm really happy about that and i'd like to just briefly mention them Is that okay yeah do it oh okay did you see him i saw the one i haven't okay. seen another one so the one was about um acog and uh, it was titled acog what are you thinking and it was about acog putting out emails to its members on how to coerce women to take the COVID vaccine, that one. And um, I would encourage people to watch it. Uh, it's on Instagram. It's on my, it's on my post pay, page. And also um, read the comments. I'm not going to go through all the comments, but read, read some of the comments. You know, it strikes a nerve with people on a, in a, in a good way. It's people are awakening, awakening up. No, that's not good English. People are waking up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, now that I'm back in Minnesota, my the memory of my mom haunts me even more. <laughs> you know, my mom was an English teacher. I might have said that before. Yeah. And yeah, I had perfect penmanship and perfect punctuation when I was in first grade. <laughs> <laughs> and then you became a doctor and I can barely read your writing. I that's that's true. <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting to look back. My my sister was going through some recipes from my mom um because she wants to make me some cookies to take with me to chicago sweet and i'm watching i'm looking at mom's recipes and they're all in cursive and then i thought for a second you know will my grandchildren or my great nieces and nephews there's a lot of them here will they even know what cursive is probably not are they teaching it no i don't i mean maybe a little bit in some places but mostly not yeah 
Yeah, I mean, my handwriting has deteriorated badly, but my mother's handwriting was impeccable, and it's beautiful, and it's and it's it's fun to see handwritten letters or handwritten recipes uh, in cursive. It's really nice. Yeah. So you're talking. Um, you're going to tell us about the other um, mm-hmm. post that you did, and yes. uh, I just wanted to give people a little preview that today we are going to be talking about ectopic pregnancies. Well, I have something important about ectopic pregnancies to tell you. Great. I am an ectopic. You are? Because of the definition of ectopic? (laughs) It says, uh, being out of place or having an abnormal position. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So actually, you're, you're sort of an ectopic, too. I am <laughs> because we don't we don't stay in our place. We're not good placeholders. <laughs> Are we? We, uh, we like to we like to shake things up. We certainly do. I want to I want to read a couple of comments. My second my second uh, reel was about color Doppler ultrasound usage and how it started out as something that has really rare but really useful indications. And like everything else, it has the creep and is now essentially standard in almost every ultrasound that's done by a maternal fetal medicine specialist or an ultrasound place that does like 20-week scans. They automatically turn it on mm-hmm. without any consideration about the potential downsides of it. And also, what I mentioned was, why why do they turn it on? Why does everybody get it? Because... They'll justify it as saying, oh, we can find things. But that's not what color Doppler was created for. It's created for certain things. And then it just has this use this use creep where it just, you know, it starts to become routine. And now it's just routine. And I remember when color Doppler, when I first got color Doppler and I was using it, you can't just use color Doppler and then bill for it. It has its own code. You have to have a diagnosis that correlates with the RVS code for Doppler. So if you find nothing wrong, they're not going to pay for your color Doppler. But if you put down velamentous cord insertion or marginal cord insertion, which we know doesn't really mean anything, or if you put down rule out IUGR, then they'll get paid for it. So what happens is, is they start labeling patients who really don't have anything wrong Mm -hmm. with these diagnoses called rule out this and rule out that, which then goes into your electronic medical record and will be there for the rest of your life simply so they can get paid for a test they probably didn't need to be doing in the first place. Right. That's a brilliant point. Absolutely. And I'm sure that I'm sure that it's across many, many, many other parts of all healthcare, not just that. Yeah. Well, occasionally I do come up with something. (laughs) You know, I, I went to get my hair done. You didn't tell, you didn't say that my hair looked good, Stu. I'm, I'm giving you a hard time today. (laughs) You know, well, you actually, are my worst I th- husband. I think in our first recording that we had to restart over, I did, I might have mentioned it, but maybe, we, maybe not. You're right. Okay. So I went to get my hair done and my hairdresser is pregnant. And um, we were talking about some of the additional tests. She said that she gets billed $1,500 per ultrasound with insurance. With insurance. And so she's starting to like, 
question how many ultrasounds she needs because it's so expensive, right? And so one of the things they wanted to do is they wanted to do a vaginal ultrasound. Um, She's in her second trimester and they wanted to look at the os, the opening of her cervix to see if she was at risk for preterm labor. And she said, I didn't have it last time. I'm not having any symptoms. I would like for you to skip that because I don't want to pay for whatever extra thing that might be. So I think it happens consistently throughout pretty much everybody's um, pregnancy. And it's interesting her talking to me as a midwife because, you know, I was like, we wouldn't even be doing any of these additional ultrasounds if you were in my care, you know? So it's just, um, it's wild. Liz, we used to have, I, I used to have a biller and she was pregnant and she k- took care of a lot of other doctors in the area um, as for billing. And I remember she was at, in the hallway of my office or somebody else's office. And she ran into a maternal fetal medicine guy and they were talking and he said, you know, you're pregnant. You want to, you want me to just look at your baby just for fun? And she said, sure. So she went in and he scanned her and he billed her insurance for over a thousand dollars. Wow. Found her in the hallway walking around. Wow. Took her in, offered her a fun, but it really wasn't a scan for fun. It was a scan. It was a scam for fun. Is what it was. S C A M. Wow. Yeah, he built. Yeah, yeah, he built her insurance for over a thousand dollars for a scan that was completely unindicated. She wasn't even his client, but he did it anyway. Yeah. So you're right. You're right. This goes on a lot. Now, the problem is, is like like a broken clock. Every now and then, they do the right thing. But so many times they do the wrong thing. How many times can you cry wolf? Speaking of crying wolf, I, I like I said, I saw uh, Into the Woods yesterday, which <laughs> now just is in my head, the, the the howling and the songs and the things like that. But um, how many times can you do that before you stop trusting these people? Right. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're, it's beyond trust for us now. So I want to just read a couple of comments that people wrote. There were four that I thought were There's a lot of great comments, but these four, this is from the midwife homestead. She says, thank you for shedding light to this. Anne Fry midwifery also states that one minute Doppler exposure is equal to 35 minutes of real time ultrasound exposure. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I trust Anne Fry. Yeah. Uh, Right. So let's find the next one. Okay. Pastry queen three, one, three says, thanks for this. I had two to three color ultrasounds because the MFM was worried about a heart block due to the po- due to my positive anti-nuclear antibodies, ANA. Even though nothing was found, they wanted to see me weekly from 22 weeks on, as well as two times weekly non-stress tests to watch for growth restriction. I declined because I felt it was unnecessary and unsafe for my baby who was developing fine. I'm now glad I did. By the way, she was born perfectly healthy, seven pounds, 12 ounces. Aww. All right. And then for the love of health, 22. I wonder who the love of health 21 is. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, this is worrisome for me as I'm 30 weeks pregnant with identical twins. And I've been getting an ultrasound every two weeks to check for, for growth and rule out TTTS, which is not inappropriate. Now I have to see the cardiologist for them, even though there's no indication of an issue. 
I like making sure they are okay but more often, but it worries me of the constant scans. Right? There is no reason for her to see the cardiologist. If she's had 20-week scans by a good sonographer in, in the MFM practice that she's associated with, they can rule out, and we talked about this on a recent podcast, they can rule out any major cardiac anomaly. It's just more scanning. And, and of course, when you do a cardiac scan or any vascular scan, you're doing a long time with the color Doppler flow thing on. And then lastly, I like this one too. Your Virgo dragon says, I'm opted to get my uh, genetic testing because my sister's child passed away from trisomy 18. I'm low risk. Trisomy 18, by the way, is a random event. So if even if your sister had it, there's no there's no inherited tendency to get it. But I understand why you want to be tested because you experienced that in your family. Uh, they found marginal cord insertion. Uh oh. <laughs> Although everything else is normal, they want me to continue with two growth ultrasounds in my third trimester. I was already uncomfortable with this because I'm very healthy and I've had a very smooth pregnancy so far. And I'm unsure if it's actually necessary. Maybe I'll just do one. I don't want to risk a false diagnosis. Don't do any. <laughs> We've talked about third trimester ultrasounds. Um, yeah. Have have somebody palpate your belly and tell you if your baby's growing. That That is uh, a definitely a way to know that your baby is thriving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are with your little story that you told at the beginning, it's exactly right. They're constantly looking for ways to buy bigger houses and pay their mortgages and buy nicer cars and things like that. And, you know, and I don't begrudge them for doing it. Honestly, doctors deserve to be paid well, mm -hmm. but it's a scam. And the reason it's a scam is because the whole system is set up to be a scam because all the main parts of the money are siphoned away by the businessmen who run these things. And then insurance companies pay themselves exorbitant salaries. They have really nice buildings. They have private jets. They sponsor golf tournaments. And yet they nickel and dime the, the practitioners who are providing the services for them. So they end up having to upcharge and over uh, and over uh, test in order to be able to pay their own bills. Yeah. And ultrasound is a very easy scam. Because you can play on the emotions of people and, and scare them into doing it and saying you're doing it and, and show them. And, you know, what relief a woman has when she sees everything's fine. And yeah. it is fun. To, yeah. It is fun to see your baby. Right. But you're going to be seeing your baby in a few months anyway, every freaking hour of every freaking day. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you could be old fashioned and just wait to meet the baby when the baby comes. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So then I got this, I got this message on Instagram from Emily. And I just wanted to read this because it's related to the Doppler ultrasound. And, and, and there's something in it that you'll laugh at that is so indicative of what, of what goes on. Um, well, that, no, that's more in Kylie's email, but it's this, there's some recommendations here that are just crazy. By the way, your hair looks great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I just like to tease you. <laughs> I know you do. Well, you know what? Everybody does. <laughs> but you know what? You don't tease people that you don't have affection for. That's right. Well, you maybe you did when you were in second grade. 
You know, that's an interesting, that's another interesting flashback that I had when I was here. We were talking about how some kids don't, aren't getting along with other kids and they bully other kids and, and they disrupt, they're disruptive and they disrupt the classroom. And I was thinking back to when I was in first, second, third grade, because I rode by my old elementary school. I rode by my old neighborhood. I saw my house I grew up in. Mm -hmm. um, the trees have all changed. Some of them are still there, but uh, a lot of the trees came down. They had Dutch elm disease here and they, the big trees in front of my house are gone. But we we used to tease some kids badly. And one of them was a little kid that had really bad eyesight. And his first name was Stuart, by the way. And we we teased him. And then as I'm having all these issues with my eyes, I, I'm thinking like, that was really mean. Hmm. Kids can be really mean. You know, a group think, mass formation. If, if if the cool kids are teasing him, then you have to tease them too. And he had to endure all that stuff. Yeah. Kids can be cruel. That's for sure. Yeah. And then they grow up and become hospital administrators. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, okay. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague and her company BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first, you know, beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages, so cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then, of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah, I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in L.A. before, before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because... This kind of a program is great for our our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with the number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. All right. This is from Emily. Hi, Dr. Stu. I don't know if you'll get this in time, but I'm 35 weeks pregnant and have been monitored for growth restriction since 24 weeks. <laughs> okay. I live in Canada. And they initially told me I would be lucky to make it to 30 weeks. Why? Because 
Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm bringing up the suspense here. Because I had an abnormal Doppler reading, which indicated the baby wasn't compensating and, re- and was redirecting its blood flow. They were positive that I had placental insufficiency. However, we denied further invasive testing and genetic testing, as we had already done genetic screening due to fertility issues treatment, and we did not want any invasive tests completed. We have been doing weekly Doppler readings, and they were perfectly normal up to 32 weeks. We did, however, complete the torch titers. Do you know what torch titers are, Liz? Um, yeah. Do you remember? Torch, torch is, um, oh God, toxoplasmosis. And um, I just don't remember what all of them are, but they to, to make sure. Rubella, rubella cytomegalovirus, uh-huh. and herpes. Okay. There you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, it's sometimes done when you have a fetal demise. It's sometimes done when you have unexplained problems. You're looking for some chronic viral thing, um, which uh, indicated I was IgM positive for cytomegalovirus. Okay. Now, IgM means current infection or recent infection. They then said that that was the cause of my baby's growth restriction. The hospital that we were being monitored by is a university hospital. I lack trust in their methods as I am aware that they are more researched and learning based and I question how much of their practices are actually necessary versus data collection and research. I'm not sure that that's a fair assumption, but I would. But questioning is good. So I'm not sure if that's the great best reasoning for it. Um, but questioning them is good. So what she what did she do? Something really smart. I decided to have my family doctor redo the torch screening, different region, and not connected to the university hospital. And the CMV results came back negative for both IgM and IgG. Very smart. Meaning at the hospital, yeah. Again, we this is something we've emphasized on the podcast. You and I is that mm-hmm. if you get a test that doesn't seem right, don't act on it. Repeat it. Yeah, and, and repeat it with just, somebody else is is even better. So that was very smart. Right. So she says. Uh, so the meaning of that, the test the hospital ran was a false positive. Now, somebody could say, "Well, why do you trust the negative, and not tr- not the positive?" Well, one of them's wrong. Yeah. And it makes sense since she doesn't have CMV and she feels fine that it was the one that where she tested positive for acute episodes of CMV. Now, here's the, here's the kicker, though. I'm five foot one inches tall and my husband is five foot three. Genetically, we both have small families with his size being side being under five feet in some cases. At 32 weeks, the Dopplers indicated I have above 95% restriction I'm not sure what that means. However, the baby is growing consistently with steadily with a biophysical profile of eight out of eight the entire time. Baby seems to be compensating and hasn't since that initial reading, which they admit could have been an error that again, some of the things she wrote doesn't make a lot of sense how she wrote it. However, they want me to induce at 37 weeks. I wonder if that's actually necessary in my case, given there's no indication that baby is in distress. They tell me there is no benefit to going past 37 weeks. And I struggle with this logic. Any yeah, insight? Good. <laughs> any insight you could greatly appreciate. So, Bliss, is there benefit to going past 37 weeks? I mean, when you said they want to induce me at 37 weeks, I'm like, of course they do. Of course they want to 
that just like, again, we, you know, I feel like we say this on almost every episode, like they're looking for reasons to get the baby out at their convenience because it's scheduled and it's just much more controllable. So if it wasn't a benefit to be past 37 weeks, do you think that your body would continue to stay pregnant? And I always wonder, well, like, like when we induce for little babies, unless, of course, it's true IUGR where the baby is not getting what it needs from the placenta and it's going to thrive more on the outside than it is on the inside. That is a true indication for trying to induce and get a baby to be earth side. But this other thing that they are, they're doing all the time, which is the case with her, you know, what is the benefit of bringing out a small baby? Give them time to plump up the last part of your pregnancy. If nothing else, the last part of your pregnancy is when your baby gains their brown fat. So they're done developing, which is true for the most part, right? I'm sure there's some organic process with that too. It's not just like 37 and zero days and ding, we're done. And those dates are arbitrary too, unless you did implantation or something. But anyway, so they're putting on brown fat, which is how they thrive. So you as a mom will put on extra fat, maternal fat, um, and your baby puts on fat because in those first little bit of time before your mature milk comes in, baby tends to lose weight. And moms um, are, you know, throughout the breastfeeding period are losing calories through their breast milk. So they lose weight. So we put on extra weight so that we're not depleted. So there's a wisdom to all of this. So yes, many, many reasons why your baby stays in as long as it does, because that's what it yeah, needs and, to be cooked. And what size baby would you expect out of a five foot three inch husband and a five yeah, foot exactly. one inch mother? <laughs> <laughs> and why would you use your Hadlock scale for that? And and she also admits that the baby's growing and the biophysical profiles are eight out of eight. Yeah. So you're right about the 37-week thing. The 37-week thing just fits with, you know, every week they just reinforce my Dr. Stu mantra about all they care about is a live baby in the bassinet. Yeah. And how the baby gets there, what happens to the baby afterward, what happens to the mother, the mother's psyche, the mother's future pregnancies, the mother's future babies, that, that none of it matters. But in this case, it just seems like they are so risk averse that the risks that they cause do not even enter into their mind because all they see at the end of this trail is stillbirth. And that's all they see. And they say, if we prevent stillbirth, we've done a good job. Not exactly good thinking. Yeah. Yes. And Everybody you know, wants to. Yeah, go ahead. I should say, I know not everybody who listens to the podcast is maybe spiritual or, or believes in God. But, you know, when we get to these perspectives, I start to think about, like, how egotistical is it of us as a human race to believe that we are that much smarter than the beautiful design that God has created? That's where I come from, you know, and not to say that there aren't times when we get ill or we have an accident or there is something abnormal happening in our body or in our baby's body as it develops. So, you know, that does happen, but the statistics that we are seeing where 60 plus percent of women are being induced, you know, this is not necessarily better. And that starts to lead into like the AI thing, right? Like we're, we're getting into some really interesting territory where we just um, really think that we can do better than 
the, the beauty of how we're all interconnected. So. Yeah. I mean, I was talking with my brother-in-law the other night and he was telling me how they're coming out with AI manicures. <laughs> Have you heard about this? No. <laughs> you put your hand inside a machine and it analyzes your hand and it, and it manicures your hand. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lot of young born women will be out of work if that's the case, but I don't know that I would ever not want a human being to be touching my hand. I've seen too many science fiction movies where while my hand is in there, they're going to implant a tracking chip <laughs> at the same time, you know, so they can know and they can then notify me when my next manicure is due. Um, <laughs> Yep, that's where I, we're yeah. going. <laughs> well, that's where they're going. Mm -hmm. That's uh, you know, I'm I again, like I said, sometimes there's an advantage to being 67. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I'm a little bit behind yeah, you, but I, I get it. Yeah, I I for the younger people of generations and, and the kids being born now, it is a, a brave new world. Now, you could say that every generation could say that. I mean, my father was born. When, you know, uh, things cost a nickel. I mean, he could go to a movie and take the streetcar for a quarter. And, you know, the idea that went from a time where, you know, everything was done one person at a time, face to face, to how we're, how we interact now, how we just tap our card on something and it pays for it. And, you know, they, it, it, it it's, it's an incredible thing. The idea of computers, just a computer, the idea that you have the entire world's encyclopedia on your, on, in your pocket. These are amazing things. And they've changed us some for the better, obviously some for the worse. I mean, we're fatter than we've ever been before. We're not eating as healthy as we've ever been before. We're, you know, we're, we're mass formation psychosising much easier than we ever did before. And, you know, People are getting ergonomic injuries in their thumbs and their hands from like scrolling all day. Anyway. And we're not learning cursive. <laughs> and we're not learning cursive. Right. <laughs> we sound really old today. Jeez Louise. We should <laughs> we should move yeah, on to our know, topic. <laughs> it's been great. It's been great being here with my sister, though, because mm -hmm. it's so much history. Yeah. And, and we are yeah. we are our history. And all we're doing is we're making history and memories for our children. And our grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I have a couple more I, things. I, uh, okay. Yeah. There's this thing that was on Instagram the other day. It's very short. And I, I wanted to read it because I think it ties in a little bit to what we're saying. But in general, about who we are. It says, um, it's from When the Blackbird Sings um, on Instagram. She says, I don't usually do this. But if you float, you are guilty. And if you sink, you die. To be awake, to be dead. It is almost impossible for some humans to live in this world where the waters are dominated by creatures that swim against the rivers of life. And I thought, that's me. I am one of those creatures. <laughs> I am one of those people that it's impossible to swim in the waters where creatures that swim against the rivers of life. You know, I think that some people just have a really hard time with the way that things are going. And, uh, I guess that gets right. back to us being ectopic. Exactly. I was just going to, yeah, you read my mind. You're, you're out of place. You have an abnormal position. You're an ectopic. 
<laughs> okay, two more things before we get to our topic of a topic. Yep. Um, one is a letter. Uh, these are two positive breach stories. I always like to throw them in there. Okay. Yeah. The benefits, the benefits of teaching is sort of the emphasis of these. This is from Louisa via email. And she writes, Hi, Dr. Stu. I just wanted to reach out and thank you for educating about breach vaginal deliveries. When my second child flipped breach at 39 weeks, I was not a little frustrated and shaken up. I mean, she, I guess that means she was a lot frustrated and shaken up. Mm-hmm. After I failed ECV, again, you didn't fail ECV, right? The ECV didn't work, right? My midwife and I had some conversations about other options. My sister sent me a series of all your breach podcasts, and I listened to them all. That would be pretty much every single one. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I also started reading my more and educating myself on breach vaginal deliveries. My midwife thought I was a perfect candidate for giving it a try, and I so badly did not want to be sectioned. I just felt like I would be so disappointed if I didn't give it a try. Most of my friends, my husband, and my midwife were very supportive. We also hired a different midwife who was well-versed in breach delivery to attend the birth along with the other midwife. We had been planning, so they went and they spent money. Good for them. We had been planning at a birth center. But of course, changed to a home birth because of the breach presentation. I'm assuming that birth center had rules against allowing breach birth there, which again is sad mm-hmm. and wrong, but I understand it. Uh, I did spinning babies exercises, among other things, but baby never flipped. Yeah, once your baby's wedged in there, it's not going to do it. I finally went into labor naturally at 41 weeks. At this point, we were assuming baby would come frank breach. Labor started with a bang, although I was in denial for the first several contractions. Within four hours, we had our little son, Earthside. And guess what? He came out complete breach, not frank. I couldn't believe how easy it felt, and I even had no perineal tearing, which is actually the norm. We were grateful for the skilled midwife assisting as baby did get stuck at the shoulders for a few minutes. He had his arms extended completely above his head. I think she said it was her hardest delivery. I felt extremely peaceful through the whole process, though, because none of the professionals ever gave me signs that they were worried. Yeah. You know, contrast that to the stories we read about the obstetricians who are freaking out in the labor room because a woman is on all fours or isn't <laughs> in the proper position. <laughs> or doesn't I knew want that an I was epidural. Good at, what? I said, or doesn't want an epidural. <laughs> or doesn't want an epidural. Mm-hmm. Right. I knew that I was in good hands and I felt so confident that they would help me know if I should transfer. Our little one was 11 pounds, three ounces. <laughs> wow. That doesn't meet your criteria for breach. Sure, it does. It does? Because my yeah. estimated feet of weight would have been under 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I think it's a little bit oxymoronic to say our little one was 11 pounds, three ounces. Well, still littler than her. (laughs) Yeah, littler than her. Okay. It's all relative. I was shocked Mm -hmm. and quite proud. I was also grateful to God that he wanted me to be wanted me the safe, that he granted me the safe vaginal delivery I so badly wanted. No, it just goes to show that the positive predictive value of telling a woman that her pelvis is too small, her baby's too big, is so bad that it it should be outlawed. I agree a hundred percent with that. Yeah. yeah, we should contraindicate stupid predictions. 
My midwives, as well as some of the local nurses and doulas, had attended your workshop at the birth center at New Song Midwifery in southern Michigan the week prior. So that was only like three weeks ago. That's amazing. They were so inspired by your workshop and excited to have all that fresh information and training just days before my delivery. Thanks for reteaching Breach. Thanks for advocating for not only a healthy baby, but also a healthy mother who can feel empowered about her birth choices. Your podcasts were so encouraging and gave me the confidence to try. I'm so glad I did, Louisa. Great. Cool? Did she did she give you the information on the provider that is Breach, the midwife who does Breach? So you can put it on your map? I think she did. And I think it's okay. in my map. Right. Good. Well, she my map like my map is still not on the wall yet, though. You forgot to help <laughs> me do that. So <laughs> okay. And then a real quick one from a midwife Rachel, who you might remember. She used to be in California. Oh no, she's still into California. I think she's into Hatchapi, or, or she used to be anyway. Hey, Dr. Stu, I had my first surprise breach birth into Hatchapi this morning. Oh, yeah. Okay. And this was from Monday. So this is from, what, two days ago. Mom did great and baby came out with flying colors. Thanks for your class. And thanks to your class, I felt pretty good and wasn't freaked out about the situation. Though I didn't have to do anything either because baby came out so easily. Thank you for teaching breach class and helping give us midwife skills with more confidence with breach birth. She came up to the breach conference in Great Falls, Idaho, which was last month. And she came up there from Tehachapi because she's friends with uh, the host that had moved up there from that same area, La Monica. And so, again, two lovely, simple breach stories. I love it. Right? Yep. All you need to know is how to do it and when it's working and when it's not. And when it's not going smoothly, it's not often, almost never, is it an emergency. You can just see it begin to unfold that the labor isn't progressing well or something. And, and that's what we teach. That's what Breach Without Borders teaches. And any obstetrician who's out there practicing right now who doesn't know this, shame, shame on you. On you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we hang together. <laughs> we do. We do hang shame. together. Oh, my God. That's yeah. so funny you said it at the same time. Right. it's true okay one more thing this is an email from kylie there she is okay you know the problem is i can't print stuff out i know when i'm on when i'm on the road so, i remember all right so kylie says this um uh, and this is about this is a oh well you just you'll just you'll get you'll understand what it's about it's not about breach <laughs> okay <laughs> Hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss. You know, sometimes you're just plain bliss. I am sometimes just plain bliss. You know, you're being a goddess all the time is exhausting. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why Whimsical came in just at the right time. Which I still don't get, but it's okay. <laughs> Listen to your laugh. Your, la your laugh just gives you away. Okay. <laughs> I can't thank both of you enough for the work that you do. I'm 32 weeks pregnant with my second child. And recently switched from an OBGYN to a home birth midwife. You're supposed to go woot woot. I almost did. I was like, why is he pointing at me? You always do woot woot. woot, right woot. There. Okay. there we All go. Right. Thumbs up. All right. I found birthing instincts in my second trimester and listening to your podcast has truly validated a lot of feelings that I was already having. I had my son six years ago in a hospital with a CNM who was part of a group practice of seven midwives and three OBs. 
I was really happy with my experience until I was on Pitocin following premature rupture of membranes. I think she, when she says that, she means she doesn't mean preterm premature. She just means membranes ruptured prior to labor. Freaked out about being GBS positive, caved and got the epidural. Baby's heart rate was dropping during contractions, but had consistent improvement when the midwife repositioned me to hands and knees. I had only been there six hours, my first pregnancy, and I was nearly 10 centimeters dilated when I felt that my baby would be coming soon. I was still on my hands and knees facing away when, the, when an OB on call, who had never met me, pops in and suggests we prep for a C-section. I don't know what came over me in that moment other than, quote, instincts, unquote, which was shot with <laughs> all caps, which I thought was funny. Despite the fear, and or, that's why, you know, that's how the name came to be, by the way, mm-hmm. birthing instincts. Despite the fear and urgency he was trying to inflict, I squeezed my midwife's hand and told her, no, we are having this baby now. And we did within 10 to 15 minutes of pushing, despite the unfounded suggestion that we do major abdominal surgery. It took me six years to realize how much that bothered me. Mm-hmm. I'd always talked about my son's birth in a positive light because it was so, quote, fast and easy, unquote. But now I realize that how disappointing it was that I wasn't more educated and empowered. I'm inclined to believe that all of the interventions and lack of aftercare played a role in my breastfeeding struggle, uh, crippling postpartum anxiety. Moms and babies deserve better. Totally. So this is, yeah. So fast forward to my current pregnancy. I transferred care from my OB to a midwife a few weeks ago. Today, I got an automated email from my former, she thinks it's automated. Yeah, she's not sure. She got an email from her former OB that she had just left recently for a scheduled appointment for induction. (laughs) A week prior to my estimated due date for a healthy, low-risk pregnancy in which induction was never even discussed. Needless Mm -hmm. to say, I'm more at peace than ever with the choices I've made for myself and my baby and can't wait to welcome her Earthside in the way she deserves Keep spreading the wisdom, Kylie. Yay. Thanks, Kylie. Yeah. So You know what, Stu? I've been hearing this a lot more from people where they had um, an experience either, you know, with a, with a group of midwives at a birth center or at the hospital. And they're like, you know, I always thought about it as a good experience, but the more that I start to like learn and the more that I talk about it and the more that I like try and think about what I want for this experience, I realized that there were so many things that I really, I would, I would have liked to be different. And so I think that that um, happens with a lot of women who don't maybe aren't exposed to this information. They don't have friends or family who talk about community-based birthing or some of these options um, you know, they just don't know how traumatized and how their experience could have been so much better. And so I'm glad that it's getting out there. You know, it, it's true in life in general. When you when you experience a really personable interaction with somebody, it contrasts so vividly with what we normally get in our daily interaction. When you go to a bodega, and you you're buying some chips and a and a soda or something like that, and the person behind the counter never even makes eye contact with you, mm-hmm. doesn't say anything, just takes your money, doesn't even look at you. That's one thing. But the other person says, "Oh, where are you from? What's that T-shirt say?" And they engage you. It makes all the difference in the world. And that's why I thought that the you know the impersonal automated email 
telling her she she needs to schedule her induction without any discussion is a perfect uh, is perfect as an emblematic an emblematic of today's medicalized birth system. Yeah, I mean, I feel other than I got I got to know the office manager at the eye doctor's office. I feel like every time I come in there, and I've been there a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, it's very automated. They're very polite, but it's very automated. Everybody goes through the same thing, bump a bump a bump a bump a bump, and 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 there's no memory of when you were here last time. What did we talk about? None of that stuff. Doctor comes in, and sometimes they remember who I am. Sometimes they don't. Uh, it's it's not a way that I would want. To practice, it's not what I want from my contractor at my house or my butcher or anybody else. You want them, you know, you want to have a cheers bar. Yeah. <laughs> and then those, go in those of you, you who be... don't know what cheers bar is, it's a it's a comedy from the 80s. <laughs> sorry. It's not okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we all want a cheers bar where you walk in and people know your name. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Okay, so let's take a quick break and we'll be right back and okay. we'll talk about ectopic pregnancy. Great. Element's a tasty electric like drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but it also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate, raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com- and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. And we're back. And we uh, are going to talk about ectopic pregnancies. So I, it's funny that you mentioned Anne Fry today, because in my research on the topic, I pulled out, because I have all my books now from Sacramento, we're all reunited again. And if you don't know who Anne Fry is, she is a midwife who has written some of the best midwifery books that are out there, and they're all extremely large. So I pulled out Holistic Midwifery Care During Pregnancy, Volume 1 which came out in uh, 1998, by the way. So some of these statistics, I wanted you to tell me um, how much things might have changed since then. Well, she said at one point, she says at one point in the past decade alone, the incidence of ectopic pregnancy has risen fivefold. So that to me, I was like, oh, wow. And this was written back in 1988. So let's start with the definition of ectopic pregnancy. 
It's when the blastocyst, so when the, when the, when the, <laughs> that's a big word. <laughs> when the um, fertilized egg, right, um, is implants anywhere outside the uterine cavity. The result is an ectopic pregnancy. The incident of ectopic pregnancy varies from one in 80 to one in 250 pregnancies. What did you get when you looked it up? Um, yeah, they, I, I got from um, the resources I looked at, which were like the Cleveland Clinic and ACOG and a few other places online, the NIH, about one in 50, actually. So higher than what you're saying. Yeah. About, two percent, about 2%. See? So when she wrote this in, in 1998, it was 1% of all births and now it's 2%. So that's kind of that's, interesting. That's doubled. That's doubled, but that's not a five-fold increase, but four-fold increase. But it's still yeah. it's still gone up. Now, some yeah. people have said it's gone up because of IVF, but it's interesting. I read a paper on that. The NIH says that the rate of ectopics after IVF is actually only 1.6%. So I don't know what's true. It doesn't really matter. I mean, either you have it or you don't. It's not really 2%. It's like 0% or 100%, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's just some, it's something um, that you know that your practitioner should be aware of. That's all. That's right. So the other thing uh, I think that I didn't remember, I knew that it could be implanted in the abdomen, which is quite interesting for us to consider that we could have a baby implant in our abdomen. And the most common, uh, it's ninety six percent of the time, it it implants in the fallopian tube. But the ones that I didn't really remember is. Um, ovarian mm -hmm. and cervical that it can implant in the cervix. So those are more rare for sure. Um, but yeah, that, that there's one other happen. location too, that's, that could, can be quite devastating. And that's in the corneal portion of mm -hmm. the fallopian tube. That's the part of the tube that's still inside the uterine musculature. Mm -hmm. So it's considered an ectopic, but it's considered a corneal ectopic and they, there's their the vascularity there is intense and you could actually, you know, so it, it can be life threatening. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. Right. Yeah. So if it implants in, in some place other than in the cavity of the uterus, like the fallopian tube, as that gestation continues to progress and the, and the baby grows or the, the, it's not really a baby yet. So the fertilized egg grows um, there's just not enough room for that to happen. So that's when you can have a situation where you have, what's the word I'm looking for, Stu? Rupture. Rupture. Thank you. Um, you can have a rupture and that can be. Yeah, no other <laughs> organ is designed to do what the uterus does. They're not designed right. to stretch like that, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, uh, there so have been reported, rare reported incidences of live abdominal pregnancies being born. Mm -hmm. Where the placenta is implanted on the on the mesentery or the, the momentum or something like that, and the baby actually grows to a size where it survives. And in those, we shouldn't spend any time on this because it's so rare. But in those cases, what they do is they leave the placenta inside um, and let it sort of auto digest over time because to try to take it out would be catastrophic. Yeah, um, it is fascinating though that 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 is even something possible. It just shows you that. These um these babies are meant to be here. That's what it shows yeah, me. Yeah, no, we don't so, get we don't get a lot of mail on 
ectopic pregnancies, but I just thought I did think that this was a great topic to go over. And you know, for just to just to rehash how it works, I mean, fertilization for people that don't understand takes place in the in the fallopian tube. It doesn't occur. It doesn't occur in the abdomen or anything like that. The, the egg gets the egg gets released by the ovary, and whether it's magnetic, electronic, chemo chemotactic, it gets sucked up into the fallopian tube where the sperm hopefully are there waiting for it. And in the outer third of the fallopian tube is where fertilization usually takes place. And then the cell begins to divide and it takes two or three days, I think, for the egg to transfer the down the tube to, and then by then it is ready to implant in the uterus and implants in the healthy lining of the uterus, which your body has been preparing for that. If it doesn't make it to the lining of the uterus, then it's called an ectopic pregnancy. And as you said, the tube tubal location is most common, well over 90%. Are in the tube, and early detection is really important because if it's missed, it can lead to rupture uh, and internal bleeding, which can be life-threatening, and for future fertility, threatening. And so, early, early on diagnosis is important, but early on, there's no way to tell. Yeah, because I, I, what Anne Fry said that ultrasounds are not necessarily a good indication. Yeah. Not until you reach a point where you absolutely should see something in the uterus. Right. The, the 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 best thing about ultrasound is is when you have a level of hormone that shows that it, there should be something in the uterus. And sometimes you can see a small sac in the uterus when the level's around fifteen hundred. And I don't want these again. These numbers should not be hard and fast. And you, you usually can see a heart beating when it's around six thousand. That's what I was taught. I think that that probably hasn't changed much. Um, but I wouldn't count on that so much. But if you see a heart beating in the uterus. That's the only definitive way to rule out an ectopic pregnancy. Right. Um, because now you know it's in the uterus. Right. Because sometimes you can see a sac in the uterus, which is just a little bit of blood when you do have an ectopic pregnancy. So early on, there's no way to tell. And the early symptoms of it are very, very vague. There are things like vaginal spotting or bleeding, um, lower abdominal or low back pain, shoulder shoulder pain, which is a a later s- symptom, and that implies that there's blood in your belly and it dissects its way up under your diaphragm. And then your brain thinks it's your shoulder because the brain doesn't know that the diaphragm is different than your shoulder because they come from the same part of your neck when you're an embryo. It's it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, mm-hmm. Dizziness, weakness, and rectal pressure also imply like blood in the in the cul-de-sac behind the uterus. But those things can happen in, in people who aren't pregnant. They can happen in, in people who are normally pregnant so it's really not great but you're you know you it's said if you're experiencing those things early on to just check in with your practitioner so that they can then start the process of being sure that you don't have an ectopic pregnancy what right. do you got um well i wanted to um i wanted to talk about what are the predisposing factors risk factors right yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what do you got? What do you so, want me to, want um, me to do? <laughs> No. Well, you know, it was interesting because I think the most common that she talks about is um, PID. So um, pelvic inflammatory disease, which is often um, a result of sexually transmitted infections. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the other uh, one. Almost, is, almost all. It almost has to be. Well, she also says IUD users and um, any kind of hormonal birth control can be a 
increased risk as well. And then obviously there's an abnormality in the way that your uterus or your tubes are formed. That could be a reason why. But yeah, the reason that I think birth control pills are included in that is the same reason that smoking and maybe maybe being and um, lifestyle in general, because I think they're related to lifestyle in general. Generally, and this is a presumption. This is not blister eye thinking this, but people who take birth control not necessarily control their cycles, which is a whole other can of worms, but take birth control are probably more likely to be sexually active. People who smoke supposedly are more likely to be sexually active. I don't know that smoking itself is actually causes, they say it does. Maybe it affects the motility of the fallopian tube uh, cilia or whatever. It's starting to get really into the weeds with that. But I think there's, it correlates with sexual activity. It's very, very rare for somebody who hasn't had uh, pelvic infection or used an IUD to have an ectopic pregnancy. It, it can happen in anybody, but it but those things are risk are more are more risky, partly because they're more, more likely to be having sex with more partners, which puts them in more at risk for pelvic inflammatory disease and right, sexually transmitted right. infections. Right. Well, one right. of the one of the women from my my school, one of the people in my um, cohort, had a um, ectopic pregnancy. But she also, she only had one partner her whole life. She met her husband in like third grade or something. So um, she doesn't fit into that category at all. No. But um, she uh, had problems with her cycles. And so I think that that too could be an indication that something is not moving properly in terms of how your your hormonal cycle is if it's healthy or not. So she had to do a lot with um, seed cycling and stuff like that to even get pregnant. She didn't think she was going to be able to get pregnant. But um, I think that is what um, Anne Fry was talking about. But I did read something about an IUD that I thought was quite interesting, which I didn't know that I thought I would just throw in this little tidbit. She says that after you have an IUD removed, that you shouldn't attempt to get pregnant for two to three months. Is that, Would you agree with that? Um. Because there's a higher risk. No, I, I don't. I don't like to put a time limit on it. I think the uterus kind of re resets itself every month. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't know where that would come from. That why why the two to three month thing would come up. Yeah, the uterus lining has probably been damaged. That's kind of how the IUD works. Right. You know, it, it affects the it inflames the lining of the uterus, which makes even it doesn't prevent conception. Right. So it inflames the lining of the uterus so that even if you conceive the 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 developing embryo isn't going to fall into a uh, or blastocyst, like you like to say, isn't going mm-hmm. to fall into a fertile environment. It's going to fall into like a desert valley with where it's not going to implant. So mm-hmm. so, <laughs> yeah. So once you take that out and the woman gets her next period, the inflammation should reside. But, you know, OK, it make it. You know, there may be some data that suggests if you get pregnant earlier, you have a higher rate of miscarriage. I, I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, I thought that was interesting. Okay. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of other risk factors that I'd like to just talk about briefly because some of them Please. are relevant to what we talk about all the time. Um, pelvic uh, pelvic uh, intra-abdominal scarring mm-hmm. and adhesions, which can come from previous abdominal surgeries. It could come from having a ruptured appendix. It could have come from having a ruptured cyst sometime in your past. Other inflammatory things like people with Inflammatory bowel disease, theoretically, more likely to have pelvic adhesions or abdominal adhesions, which can then affect the tubal motility or the ability of the tube to pick up the egg. So that sort of thing can happen. 
tubes that are damaged for whatever reason, whether it's congenital or there's the, it's been acquired again, like from from in, another inflammatory process can happen. And one of the risk factors is having a previous ectopic, which we'll we'll maybe t- touch on in a, later on. I always thought that a history of infertility, which was probably ca- maybe tubal factor infertility, puts you at greater risk, and so having IVF puts you at greater risk. But apparently, it it, it doesn't because it, techniques now. I think they plant the embryos right back in the uterus. But sometimes they can they can go backwards and get into the corneal portion of the tube or the tube, but it's they they say it's less than the average overall rate at one point six percent. Endometriosis is the, theoretically a risk factor again, probably because of the inflammation and scarring and adhesions it can cause. And then the question I have is, you know, previous pelvic surgery does that include cesarean section? Mm-hmm. And the answer would probably be yes, simply because there are women who have bad scarring inside after cesarean section and form these filmy adhesions that can then affect the ability of the fallopian tube to find the ovary or the egg to find the fallopian tube from the ovary. So I I think that that's true. I think that I remember it. I didn't see that in my reading, but I think I remember that somewhere in the, in the cobwebs of my mind attic. It's in there someplace, but the scary part and the sad part place is that most, most, most women, over 50% of women who have an ectopic have no risk factor. Right. It's just kind of a random thing that happens. Yeah. That's the, that's the tougher part. Yeah. So how about diagnosis? What is, does Anne say stuff about diagnosis? Half, you want me to- um, she does differential diagnosis. Oh, let's talk about that. Cause I didn't, I didn't really go into that. What did she say? Yeah, so the lack of specific symptoms, as you talked about, picture in ectopic pregnancy means that similar symptoms may be present in a variety of other situations. So a normal intrauterine pregnancy with implantation bleeding, because there tends to be some bleeding, intrauterine pregnancy um, with associated abdominal pain from round ligament pain or spasm, painful but normal, corpus luteum, ruptured bleeding, um, ovarian cyst, torsion, twisting of the ovary containing the corpus luteum, torsion of the uterine tube, degeneration or torsion of pendunculated, did I say that right? Uh, Fibroid, threatened miscarriage, missed or incomplete miscarriage, urinary tract infection, kidney stone, um, appendicitis, endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, ovarian, ovarian tumors or cysts, Tubo ovarian abscess. She gets talk about in the weeds. That's why her books are so big. But yeah, that yeah. are a lot of possible things that you could rule out. Yeah. So pretty much, pretty much anything a woman could ever experience could be <laughs> that. Right. That's Anne Frank. <laughs> right. Um, She's thorough. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. The, the 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 biggest differential diagnosis. The difference is trying to determine when you have a positive pregnancy test and you're spotting or you're having other symptoms, where's the pregnancy? And ideally, most commonly, you're going to find an intrauterine pregnancy with either implantation bleeding, or if there's intra-abdominal bleeding at the same time, it's from a ruptured corpus luteal cyst and not associated with a normal intrauterine pregnancy. That's more common than having an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah. So you have to rule that out because... M- Obviously, most women who are getting pregnant in this scenario and are seeing an obstetrician want want to be pregnant. So you want to make sure the diagnosis is an ectopic pregnancy before you start considering the options for treatment. 
You don't want to be giving medication or, or taking someone to surgery who has a pregnancy that's early, but maybe spotting or bleeding. And that's a pregnancy that she desires. That's a, that's a big no, no. Or potentially just having a, a intrauterine miscarriage, right? Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys, your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com to spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. So she has this little chart that talks about the difference between the two. And I did think that one of the things that she talked about specifically was really interesting. When she talked about, sorry, I'm trying to find it. She talks about that the, with an intrauterine miscarriage, the onset is quiet with gradually intensifying regular pain and lower abdomen resembling labor. If it's ectopic, the onset is stormy with irregular colicky and sometimes excruciating pain, which is localized on one side. The other thing she talks about, symptoms of shock are proportionate to visible blood loss versus symptoms of shock are not proportionate to visible blood loss because you can't really see the bleeding that's happening. But she talked about that the bleeding happens. Well, it, 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 the bleeding happens after, you know, after, generally there might be some small bleeding as it's growing in the fallopian tube, but the, those, those sharp clinical symptoms are when, uh, when the rupture occurs. Right. And hopefully so you, you can pick that up bleeding. beforehand. What? Yeah. So pain is before the bleeding, whereas if it's an intrauterine miscarriage, you would have the bleeding and then have pain, which which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. On rare occasions, bleeding can occur with the ectopic pregnancy because early before it ruptures because the blood flows out the fallopian. It, as it distends, it flows out the fallopian tube through the uterus and out, and it can be a mistake. That, that, there, is, there is diagnostic uncertainty, and that's where I'll, let's talk a little bit about that. Ideally, okay. you want to you want to pick this up before it ruptures. 
clearly, because that gives you more therapeutic options. So how do you pick it up? Well, if somebody comes in at six weeks or seven weeks and they're pregnant with a positive pregnancy, there's no reason to suspect an ectopic pregnancy. But if they come in with symptoms that are a little bit weird, you might, you know, your doctor may draw an HCG level. All right. They may, they may throw progesterone on there because they tend to overtest and do other, other labs, but, but progesterone is not necessarily a reliable indicator of an ectopic pregnancy. It's not really useful. It may be an adjuvant test. So let's just talk about the HCG level. HCG levels normally in a, in a healthy pregnancy will double about every 48 hours. So that's why your doctor may draw one. And then if it comes back, say, at 800 or something like that, that's too soon to do an ultrasound. So don't let them do an ultrasound when it's that early because they're not going to see anything and they're going to charge you for it. And they may even turn on the color flow Doppler. So, <laughs> so, so don't do that. But then when you come back in two or three days, it should be 1,500, 1,600, 2,000. And anything over 1,500, you should be able to start to see something in the uterine cavity itself. And so if you're having discomfort and all that, that that's a reason to look. If you're not having discomfort yet, a lot, a lot of our clients would not want the ultrasound exposure, so they're not going to do one. So sometimes these things are going to get missed until you really become symptomatic. By the time you reach a level of five, six, seven thousand, you be, should be able to see a heartbeat. So if you get a, a HCG back on a woman that's complaining of some pelvic pain or or rectal pressure, whatever, and it's six thousand, and you do a scan and there's nothing in the uterus that's almost pathognomonic for an ectopic pregnancy. Can you see an ectopic pregnancy on ultrasound? Sometimes, sometimes not. Right. So, right. but you can, you can see it by the absence of a pregnancy in the uterus with a level that high is pathognomonic for it. Yeah. And um, that's what you're, what you're looking for. And then if you see free fluid in the pelvis, a procedure that's almost never done anymore was something that we did a lot of back in the eighties and nineties was a coldocentesis. Sounds brutal, but what you do is a woman's in stirrups, you put a speculum in and you take a spinal needle on a, with a syringe, maybe a 10 or 20 cc syringe, and you numb up the, the, the skin behind the cervix, the vaginal fornix, posterior fornix, and you take the needle and you pop it through and you pull back on it. And if you pull back pure blood, that was supposed to be diagnostic of an ectopic pregnancy. Hmm. And it was most of the time, you could still see that with a ruptured cyst. But if you have nothing in the uterus, you have free fluid, and then you pull it back and it's blood, it doesn't, you know, that's pretty consistent with an ectopic pregnancy. And then you have to decide how are you going to treat that? Interesting. And they don't do that anymore? No, they rely more on ultrasound and stuff. They, they're, uh-huh. they're Procedure-wise, I don't know. It's just that I don't know that they're still doing it much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, ultrasound has gotten better. Yeah. That this was sense. this was a left a hang a leftover from the fifties and sixties and seventies, yeah. And uh, it is a bit invasive, but uh, yeah. So I don't think they do it much anymore. Like, at least that's what the papers say. Mm-hmm. Okay, that I, that I read. And so then, then the, the decision about what to do. Right. So what do you do if you find that you have an ectopic pregnancy? Well, first of all, where is it? You don't necessarily know that. How high is the value? Right. When I was still working in the hospital setting if the if the value was still relatively low like under 10,000 or something like that and you hadn't seen a heartbeat yet then the treatment was was medical which was using a drug called methotrexate mm-hmm. 
and you would give it a methotrexate is a uh, it's anti anti-folinergic it's um it it's it's prevents cells dividing and it, it actually atta- attacks rapidly dividing cells and can be toxic like you can have a funny taste in your mouth because it affects your tongue and stuff like that but the dose that's given is really low for this and so there are almost no side effects at least when in the years that I used it it was about a milligram per kilogram and you do it by by maternal weight and you give the shot and then you want to follow the HCG levels over the next four to seven days. You, you check another one and you want to see it falling. It should not continue to rise after four to seven days. It might continue to rise for a couple of days. So that's why you shouldn't check it again for at least four to seven days. You check it again and it should have fallen by at least 15%. And if it falls less than that, then it's very likely that you've got an ectopic pregnancy that's not responding to your medical therapy. And if it's responding and it continues to fall, you continue to follow it every week until it goes down to zero. And if it ever plateaued or started to slowly rise again, you can can consider giving a second shot of methotrexate. Okay. She says it's highly toxic, but it may be used for the purpose uh, at has been shown 92% effective. I I guess the 8% is when you'd have to redo it. it, but it, even though it's highly toxic, it's very effective and it um, is better than losing some of your reproductive organs. Yeah. So. It, it, as far as future pregnancies go, it has a higher rate of success because it's not injuring your tube or anything like that. So it is better to use methotrexate. It saves the tube more than surgeries will generally do. So the other option is, of course, surgical approach. And if you have a ruptured ectopic pregnancy with a hemodynamically unstable mom, you have no choice. Surgery is the only treatment. You can't be, you you can't be dicking around, excuse the term. Um, And it's usually laparoscopic that laparoscopic uh, surgery came in in the early nineties for ectopic pregnancy. Prior to that, it was open laparotomy, just like it was open for appendicitis too. Now gallbladders, appendixes, ovarian cysts, even fibroids and stuff are often done uh, laparoscopically. That's, that has been a good advance because the recovery is is better and the likelihood of scarring is less. And that includes um, one of two choices if it's in the fallopian tube, which is really all we're talking about today. We're not really talking about cervical or ovarian or, or uh, abdominal pregnancies. But so there's a question of, should we open the tube up, take the ectopic out and save the tube? Or should we take out the tube? And so one is called salpingostomy. The other one is called salpingectomy. And apparently the data is mostly clear that future fertility is better if you do a, and and, and ectopic pregnancy is less likely to recur if you do a salpingectomy where you take it out than if you try to save the tube. Because something about that tube is already damaged. And you only need one tube to have 10 babies if the other tube looks normal. If the other tube doesn't look normal either, you could try to save the tube, but the risk for recurrence or infertility is high. So those sort of people may be better off going for IVF in the future now that IVF, even though it still costs money, you know, fairly successful right now with with low side effect rates from that. Um, So what you're saying is if it's in the tube, it's usually better to remove that one too because you could have reoccurrence after that surgery. Is that what you're saying? 
Recurrent ectopic pregnancy is higher in women that have salpingostomy than salpingectomy, yes. Right. Okay, got it. In most papers. Obviously, not every paper agrees, but most papers say that. And uh, future fertility is very likely, but it really depends on the cause of the, uh, if you can determine a cause of why they got an ectopic pregnancy. Anyway, when you look inside, is their pelvis a mess? And by a mess, I mean, you know, plastered down scar tissue, adhesions, endometriosis, is, does it look a mess or does it look beautiful? And was this just one of those where things you can't figure out? So the prognosis is usually pretty good for having children afterwards. They recommend um, an interpregnancy interval after an ectopic pregnancy of at least three months. So here we go again with a number that I'm not sure where that comes from. Uh, I think it's probably more arbitrary than scientific. Uh, but it, they're saying that it probably takes that long for things to heal. And if you if you were to ovulate and the egg were to go into that same tube, if you did a salpingostomy on her, then there's going to be scarring in that tube that hasn't healed yet. So that's one thing. And if you do a salpingectomy, not sure it matters quite as much. By the way, you can, this is a weird thing, you can get pregnant if you only have a right ovary and you only have a left tube. So in other words, if you lose your right tube to an ectopic and you lose your left ovary to a tumor, you can still get pregnant because of the magnificence of the human condition where the egg will find its way from the right ovary over to the left fallopian tube. That's amazing. Well, there's a chemotactic factor. There's probably cilia. There's probably movement fluid. There's also probably uh, possibly electric charge, ionic uh, attraction, things that, you know, some people probably understand it. I, I really, I just read briefly on it in the past, uh, but it makes sense to me how that little one cell finds its way, gets released in the ovary into your abdomen and finds its way into the floping tube 98% of the time. Yeah. You know, until I went to midwifery school, I had no idea that the ovary was not directly connected to the fallopian tube. I didn't know yeah. that. I think yeah. a lot of women don't know that. It's like this, like, it's kind of like this open tube with these little fingers and the, and the uh, ovary is next to it. And, and then the egg comes through the wall and then it like brings it and seduces it yeah. into, into the inside of the tube. I thought that they were like directly connected. It's just, it's, it's actually fascinating. And for you to say that it can make its way from one side to the other is even more incredible. Like the more we learn about our bodies, the more I'm just like, wow, it is really amazing what our bodies do without us doing anything. To quote Jurassic Park, Uh nature, nature finds a way. Nature finds a way. I love that. That's a good, that's a great way to end. Thanks, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's that's pretty much uh, ectopic pregnancy. It's like uh, it, it just basically means pregnancy being out of place. But you could the word ectopic has uh, has significant meaning. Probably will be into t- the title of today's podcast somehow, uh, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, we need to trust nature more. Our colleagues in the medical world often don't. They've forgotten. Nature does make mistakes. I don't know if it's a mistake. Yeah, I guess I would say an ectopic pregnancy is a mistake. And so we need to be uh, alert of those, but we don't We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to think that nature needs to be helped all the time. 
right? Yeah, because it's very wise all on its own. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for covering that. Um, I, I did have someone who wanted us to do that topic. So it's great that it's in our library now. So I yeah, and can I just give can I give one last thing on this, which is um the only good evidence for what is true about ectopic pregnancy, there's only two things that we talked about that are good evidence that what we call level A evidence. And that's in clinically stable women in whom a non-ruptured ectopic pregnancy has been diagnosed, laparoscopic surgery or intramuscular methotrexate administration are safe and effective treatments. And the second one is surgical management of ectopic pregnancy is required when a patient is exhibiting any of the following hemodynamic instability symptoms of an ongoing ruptured ectopic mass, such as, or signs of intraperitoneal bleeding. I mean, if they're, I, I read that wrong, but if they have hemodynamic instability, symptoms of an ongoing rupture or intraperitoneal bleeding, then they should be taken to surgery and no no dicking around. Okay. No fuckery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, so um, that's, that's our podcast for today. Anything you want to say in parting? Uh, no, it's always great to see you. And I look forward to seeing you in person in, uh, in just a few days. And support our sponsors. Yes, indeed. So we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 